Today we're back in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin our examination of the seventh beatitude. I say begin uh, because I got a bit carried away this week uh, with my preparation and I think I put together my what might be an hour and a half long sermon. So I chopped it in half. So um, today we're going to focus on what it means to be a peacemaker, and then next week we'll focus on what uh, it means to be called sons of God. And I think both of those ideas are ideas that we probably should really take extra time to focus on because I think these days people have... Uh, the wrong idea about what it means to be a peacemaker, if, uh, and certainly the wrong idea about what it means to be called sons of God. So I think it's a good thing that I got carried away, perhaps. Uh, <clears throat> I'd like to begin reading our text, as I usually do, with the first ten verses of Matthew 5, but of course our focus will be on verse 9, and in particular the first half of verse 9. Beginning in verse 1, we read that seeing the multitudes, our Lord Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's take a moment to pray. Holy Father, I come to you on behalf of myself and my brothers and sisters in the Lord this morning, uh, asking that you would please fill us with your spirit now. Give us understanding, I pray. Help us through the power of your spirit to grasp the lesson that you would have us to take away from our Lord Jesus' words. Help us to understand what he had in mind when he spoke of being a peacemaker and to follow his example. We know we can't understand these things without the work of your spirit in our hearts. We know that we certainly can't live these things out without the work of your spirit. And so we again ask that you would fill us with your spirit. We ask these things for our good and for your glory and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In commenting on this verse, John Stott, I think, has aptly observed that, quoting him now, the words peace and appeasement are not synonyms. Certainly not from a biblical perspective, they're not. He goes on to say, for the peace of God is not peace at any price. He made peace with us at immense cost, even the price of the lifeblood of his only son, the Lord Jesus. We too, though in lesser ways, will find peacemaking a costly enterprise. I think uh, Stott was right when he said that the words peace and appeasement are not synonymous. He was also right to consider the example of our Father and of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, 
We'll do the same as we examine the text for this morning, which again says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And in trying to understand what Jesus is aiming at here, as I've been doing with all of these, I'm, I'm asking questions, right? Uh, first question that we'll ask of this verse is, who are the peacemakers? Of course, in answering that question, we'll talk about what it means to be a peacemaker. And then secondly, what does it mean that they shall be called sons of God, peacemakers? And as I've already noted, uh, though, this week, we're going to focus on the first question, and we'll have to wait for our answer to the second question next week, because, as I said, I I got kind of carried away. And uh, looking throughout the New Testament, uh, in particular about what it says about peace, first of all, what our Lord Jesus said about peace and his role as a peacemaker, and how then we are to follow his example, and how we see that concept then throughout the New Testament as the apostles sought to teach the people of God to follow that example. And so as we look at that overall context of our Lord Jesus' teaching and example, and then how that got fleshed out in the people of God in the early church, we'll come away, I hope, with a really good idea of what the Bible means, what Jesus meant when he spoke of being a peacemaker. And again, it's not really what a lot of people may think. But the first question, who are the peacemakers? And as I said, we're going to begin with Jesus, who is the prime example of the peacemaker. And as we look at his example, I want us to consider four facts uh, from the scriptures about Jesus and his teaching. The first one is that Jesus was foretold as the one who would bring peace. And so this is, this is a very important part of his messianic ministry, bringing peace. Uh, we have this, for example, in Isaiah 9-6, where we read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, meaning that he would be equal with the Father, right? He would be God. And then, Prince of Peace, which of course tells us something about his messianic ministry. It's, it's to bring, ultimately, peace. And as we'll see, that's a peace with God, and then also peace with one another. In the church now, and, and of course in the future. So this was a, a central aspect, an important aspect of his ministry, of why he came as the Son of God. And secondly, Jesus brought peace with God for each one of us. And so that's the first thing. He brought peace with God for each one of us. That was the primary way in which he was to bring peace. Paul spoke of this in Romans 5, 1 and 2, when he spoke of our having been justified as believers, therefore having been justified by faith. And those of you who have been around here for a while know what that means, right? To be justified is to be declared righteous by God. And how's that happen when we're not righteous people when we come to God, right? Well, by his grace, right, he forgives all of our sins and he credits to us the righteousness of Christ as though it were our own. And on that basis, he declares us righteous in Christ. And that's our status before God. You might say we get to hear the final verdict of judgment day, which will be not guilty, a declaration of righteousness. We get to hear it now through faith in Christ. We know, we don't have to worry about that day because we know what the verdict is already. 
because of Christ's work on our behalf. So I wanted to pause there just to make sure, I don't know how many of you have been around here that long, what that means when, when we speak of being justified. That's a very, very important word. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, when, when we were sinners and we weren't saved, we were, of course, now we're sinners saved by grace, right? But when we weren't saved, we were God's enemies. And now we have peace with God. And, of course, that also can result in inner peace, right? Through whom also, Paul says, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have this peace by the grace of God. And we rejoice, he says, in the hope of the glory of God. And for those who want more on that, some months back I did a sermon on that very idea that you can find on Sermon Audio. Uh, uh, so I'm going to avoid the temptation to preach that again now. Uh, we also see Paul speak of this idea in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, where he says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, speaking of the fullness of God, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, speaking of Christ, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That's how peace with God was brought to us. As Stott had said, it came at great cost, right? The cost of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, bearing there the punishment for our sins, having the wrath of God poured out on him so that it doesn't ever have to be poured out on us. So that's a principal idea of how, what it means that Jesus was a peacemaker. Right? He brought peace between us and God through his sacrifice. His sacrificial life, death, resurrection, and ascension to the Father's right hand. But Jesus also brought a peace to us that we can share and are supposed to share with one another. We never get anything from God by his grace that we're not supposed to share with everyone else. We can read about this in Ephesians 2, 11 through 17. And here, there was some turmoil between Jewish and Gentile believers in the early church. And Paul was talking about how that, that had been done away with in Christ. There was like a wall between them. There literally was a wall in the temple for a while. There was the court of the Gentiles, and they couldn't go any further. And that wall's been torn down. And that's the kind of imagery Paul has in mind when he talks about this. But that serves as an example for all Christians of all ages and how we are one in Christ. If these two people's at enmity with one another can be brought together, then we can all be brought together, right? It doesn't matter what background you are, ethnic background. I won't say racial background because I don't believe in this modern idea of race. Anyway, there's one race, people. It's the human race. And we all have the same mother and father, Adam and Eve. And I don't even know what they look like. I don't know what color they were, and I don't care doesn't matter to me. We all have peace if we're in Christ. We're brothers and sisters. Paul has this in mind when he says in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, and there he's talking about how the Jews would put down Gentiles. That was a put down to call them uncircumcised. It was saying that they were Godless people, when they said that. 
He says that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Remember, Prince of Peace. This is what he came to be, and that's what he is. And he has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Some of the early church fathers would talk about Christians as a third race, because they thought of the Jews as a race and the Gentiles as a race, but in Christ there's a third race, right? Christians. And all those other distinctions are gone. We could learn something from them, I think in their attitude. We're told he did this that he might reconcile them both to God into one body through the cross of Christ, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who were near. So Jesus has made peace for us, right? Between ourselves and God. And that peace should flow out to the body. It should be experienced by the body of Christ, that we're all one in Christ. It doesn't matter what our background is, rich or poor. In the, in the old days, he would say slave or free, male or female, Jew or Greek, whatever ethnic background you might be, whatever part of the world you might be of. If you are a follower in Christ, you are my brother, you are my sister. We are family. And all these other distinctions, they don't matter at all anymore. That's the idea. That's the kind of peace the Bible's talking about when it says that Christ was the Prince of Peace and when he calls us to be peacemakers. And there are precious few Christians these days that seem to understand it. And that's a shame. There's a fourth fact, though, and this is an astonishing one after all that we've just looked at. There is a sense in which Jesus did not bring peace. And he himself spoke about it. Here's an example. We'll look at a couple of examples. The first in Matthew 10, verses 34 through 36, where Jesus says these very strong words. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. What? <laughs> What? (laughs) That seems to be the opposite of what he came to do. Uh, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. What? (laughs) What are you saying? For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies shall be those of his own household. And there he's alluding to Matthew, or Micah rather, 7, 6. Now, what he has in mind here is that he knows that when people believe in him, when they trust in him as their savior, this may put them at odds even with their loved ones in their lives. It might actually bring division and not peace in that sense. Yes, they have peace with God. Yes, they have peace with other believers. But unbelievers in their life, there may not be peace at all. And this is a stern warning about that. He talks about it again, as we'll see, 
But the point here is that peace is not always possible. And Jesus, uh, as we'll see in John 15, made it very clear that uh, we're not always going to have peace with others and that our very lives as Christians will often lead to quite the opposite in this world of peace. We'll still have peace with God. We'll still have peace, hopefully, with one another as Christians. But we may not have peace with people in the world around us. That's to be expected because they don't want the peace that we have to offer. And the only peace that God offers is peace that is based on his truth as it is in Jesus Christ. And there is no other peace that he offers. And people that don't want that peace will hate God and they'll hate us too. That's what Jesus himself tells us in John 15, 17 through 20 when he says, these things I command you that you love one another We're at peace with one another, right? If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Doesn't sound like peace, does it? Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. There are way too many professing Christians out there that think that peace means we get along with everybody else at all costs and they're willing to throw out the truth in order to get along. They go along to get along. And so, for example, if somebody says, uh, I'm going to take great offense, some man says to me, I'm going to take great offense if you don't call me she or her, The Christian who says, well, I'm going to be a peacemaker. Go ahead and call him she or her. I'll throw out the truth to have what seems to me like peace. But that's not the peace that God is talking about when he says we're supposed to be peacemakers. We're supposed to bring them the gospel, which we'll talk about more later which challenges their sinful ideas, which challenges these kinds of lies, and offers them peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, and peace in the body of Christ as well. And that might put them at enmity with the world, just as it does us. But we don't throw out truth and appease people and call that peace. You don't find that idea anywhere in the Bible. And any pastor out there, quote-unquote, that preaches that it's okay Because we want to be kind and get along with people. We don't want to be offensive. You cannot follow Christ without being an offense to the world. He said so. They're looking for the kind of peace that Jesus says we shouldn't look for at all. We should be willing to die before we accept that kind of peace. The devil would call that peace. But Jesus wouldn't. Not if it sacrifices the truth. Not if it leaves people in their sins going to hell. Not if it leaves them in their self-deception. And that's not love to do that for people at all. It's a hateful thing to tell that man, yeah, I believe you're a woman, when I know he's not. 
I'm just picking that as a, an example that we're facing today. If I sound pretty strong about it, it's because that's exactly how I feel. I think that's the way we ought to approach it biblically. Now, we can be loving to those people and say, you know, I'm sorry I can't do that. I'm sorry, sir, I can't call you a woman. I can't call you she. I can't call you her. Because I know you're a man. I know you'll always be a man, no matter how much you mutilate your body. And I grieve for you that you're so deceived. It breaks my heart. I feel for you. I genuinely do. I can't go along with your self-deception. I just can't do it. I love you too much to do that to you. I love you enough to tell you the truth and to tell you you can get help from Jesus with your struggle. He can give you peace with who you really are. Because that's the kind of peace he brings, peace that comes from the truth. Sometimes it puts us at odds with the world. It makes us seem harsh to them, mean. But we know better. Sometimes hard things have to be said in love. It's no coincidence, then, that the next beatitude that we'll get to in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, after blessed are the peacemakers, is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We can see how those two things go together now, can't we? So that's the first thing. Taking into account the example and teaching of Jesus helps us to see what he means when he talks about being a peacemaker. And it's not what a lot of people think. Secondly, then, we'll see that we should be peacemakers like Jesus. We've already seen that because he said, blessed are the peacemakers, and he's talking about his followers. It's what this beatitude is about. We must first recognize, however, as we've already seen quite clearly, that peace is not always possible with those around us. And this fact was also presupposed by the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the Roman believers about the importance of living at peace with others. He says in Romans 12, 18, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men, as much as depends on you. Do all that you can to live at peace. But we've already seen what that means, right? Stop short of denying the truth in any way. We don't sacrifice the truth for peace. It's not possible for us to be at peace with people if it means sacrificing the truth as it is in Jesus, the truth that we find in God's word. Then there's, it's not our fault then that we're not at peace with them. We're trying our best, but it can't be helped. Paul knows that. That's why he says, if it's possible. He knows full well it's not always possible. In fact, as we've already seen, the very fact that we're peacemakers will often lead to a lack of peace. Because the world doesn't want the peace we have to offer, as it is in Jesus, very frequently. It'll lead then to persecution and resentment of us, just as it led to hatred of Jesus himself. Um, and again, this is because, as I said already, we must bring to the world a message that they are sinners who need to be reconciled to God. That that's how they can have peace. 
They need peace with God first. And that peace is on his terms, not theirs. And that means we're going to have to be willing to confront sin in the world around us, and even, if need be, in our own brothers and sisters in Christ in order to help them to be reconciled to God and to one another. To use the example I used before because it's such a problem in our culture now, we need to confront these brothers and sisters in Christ with their compromise with the truth. When they go along with the lies that our culture is telling them to go along with. Because, you know, it makes them feel better. They like to be accepted. Hey, I do too. Who doesn't? I want everybody to love me. I want to be accepted by everybody. I want everybody to be my friend. I don't like it when people don't like me. Most of us feel that way, I'm sure. But I love Jesus more than I love the applause and approval of men. I hope. That's what I strive for anyway. So there's sometimes even our fellow professing believers won't receive us very well. And we have to just accept that. I think Kent Hughes has given some very wise counsel about this issue in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it's deserving of our consideration. So I'm going to quote him at some length here. See if you think he's got the right ideas based on what we've been studying. I think he does. He says, what then is a peacemaker like? To begin with, he is characterized by honesty. If there is a problem, he admits it. The prophet Ezekiel warned against those who act as if all is well when it is not, who say peace when there is no peace. Such, according to Ezekiel, are merely plastering over cracked walls. The plaster obscures the cracks, but when the rain comes, the true state of the walls is revealed and the walls crumble. Jeremiah, employing similar phrasing, put it memorably, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. The peacemaker does not do this. He is painfully honest about the true status of relationships in the world, in the society in which he moves, and in his own personal dealings. He admits failed relationships. He admits that he is at odds with others, if it is so. He honestly acknowledges tension if others have something against him. He does not pretend. He refuses to say peace, peace, when there is no peace. How this speaks to real life, we tend to putty over the cracks. This is particularly a male tendency. Sorry to say that's been my experience as well. Even in our most intimate relationships, men tend to act as if everything is okay when it is not. Far too many husbands I've known over the years sweep things under the rug rather than confront them. And then they come to me because their marriage is falling apart because they've had some big falling out when it's really been a thousand or two thousand little things that were never dealt with because he was trying to keep peace but he wasn't being peacemaker at all because the enmity was always there and just building because these things don't go away. They only ever get worse if we don't confront them. So this is putting the peacemaker thing into these kinds of relationships. I think 
I think Hughes is right to go in this direction in application. Men often avoid reality because they want peace, but their avoidance heals the wound only slightly and prepares the way for greater trouble. He then says, next, a peacemaker is willing to risk pain. Here's the real rub. There's a lot of people out there that won't be the kind of peacemaker that Jesus wants them to be because they won't risk pain. They'll fall apart if somebody says bad on Twitter about them, something bad, right? I can't have that. He goes on to say, anytime we, we attempt to bring peace personally or societally, we necessarily risk misunderstanding and failure. If we've been wrong, there's the pain of apologizing. On the other hand, we may have to shoulder the equally difficult pain of rebuking another. In any case, the peacemaker has to be willing to risk it. The temptation is to let things slide. It is easy to rationalize that trying to bring true peace um, will only thing, make things worse. That's what a lot of people say to us as Christians now. To use my example from before, yeah, we should be okay with gay marriage, for example. We should be okay with women calling themselves men, men calling themselves women. We should be okay with LGBTQXYZ plus minus whatever it is now. We should be okay with that because, uh, you know, we're only making things worse. We're only making them hate us more when we're honest. That's not true. We're making things worse when we don't tell the truth. And we're supposed to know that. Jesus expects us to know that as Christians. He, he finishes by saying, Hughes, that these two qualities of the peacemaker, honesty about the true status of peace and a willingness to risk pain in pursuing peace, beautifully anticipate the next quality, which is a paradox. The peacemaker is a fighter. He often makes trouble to make peace. I actually think Paul would agree with that assessment. Um, since he knows, as we've seen, that being at peace with all men is not always possible, and he would never have us sacrifice the truth for peace. But Paul also knew that it would sometimes be difficult to be at peace even with our brothers and sisters in the Lord, which is while he went on to command later in Romans 14, 16 through 19, therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Notice that, the things which make for peace and which edify or build up another, which are for the good of another. And we don't define that good by what the other thinks is good, but by what God tells us is good. Now, in that context, Paul's referring to our not allowing differences over matters of conscience to cause trouble between us. He's describing our need to set aside our own desires and preferences over questionable issues in order to be at peace with one another, right? There should never be a church split over the color of the carpet. That should never happen, right? Nonsense like that should never happen in the Christian church. One who pursues peace, Paul assumes, 
We'll always seek that which strengthens our brothers and sisters in their relationship to Christ and never puts a stumbling block in front of them. And sometimes that means saying things that they don't want to hear. But which we know are in the pursuit of peace, peace with God and each other. In his earlier letter to the Ephesian church, Paul had spoken emphatically of the importance of unity and peace in the body of Christ. He says this in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling to which you were called. We're supposed to live up to the calling to which we've been called. The way we live is supposed to match that calling, right? And then he describes some ways that's to be so. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul assumes that we're going to need humility, patience, forbearing love in our hearts if we're going to be peacemakers. That means we're going to have to have been changed ourselves, right? Through faith in Christ. Because we can't do these things in our own strength. Not only should we seek to live at peace with all men and with one another as believers, but we should also seek to spread peace through reconciliation with God. And that's through the spreading of the gospel. And Paul stresses this in Ephesians 6, 14 and 15, when he says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. There's that importance of truth again. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and that's the righteousness of Christ I talked about earlier. It's been credited to us, right? Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, Paul says, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel is about peace, peace with God. Through Christ. And that should bring peace between us as Christians, as I said. So clearly the peacemaker is one who's always ready to share the gospel with others. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. We know as Christians, that means we're, we're gospel preachers. We're witnesses to Christ. The peace that matters comes only through him. Of course, that also requires that we live righteously as gospel witnesses. We have to walk worthy of our calling, as Paul said. I'll finish here my last scripture with something the Apostle James says, the brother of our Lord. He says this in James 3, 17 and 18. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The peacemaker will not be a hypocrite, will not show favoritism, but will be equally humble and merciful to all. He will bear the fruit of righteousness by being a peacemaker. He will make peace in all the ways that Christians are called to. So we've come to the end of our brief overview of what it means to be a peacemaker. I think I've tried to give us a biblical idea 
of what was in the mind of Jesus when he said this. And again, it's not like what a lot of people today seem to think. It's quite different. In the process, we've seen that peace isn't always possible, and that it must never be sought at the expense of the truth. It's not like it works anyway, right? In, in, in this cultural situation that we're in, where people are apologizing for the sins of their forefathers that they didn't commit, where people are pretending to be another sex that they're not, or not just pretending, are actually confused into thinking it. And, and in this crazy kind of situation in which we live, where two men can get married, two women can get married, this godless stuff like that. Sexual immorality is rampant in our culture. It's a terrible culture in many respects that we live in today. How many examples have you seen where people go along with the far left in particular? I have to say it's the far left because that's the people doing it. The people pushing Marxist ideas and things like that. They're the people really behind a lot of what's happening right now. We just have to be truthful, honest about that. How often does it really work? How often does it really bring peace when people go along with them? Do they suddenly love them for it? No. No, they don't. So in order to get peace and be liked, they give up the truth, and it doesn't give them what they want anyway. But even more than that, it puts them at odds with God. And he's the one whose approval they should care most about. Foolishness. Chip Bell, a a pastor at Fellowship Bible Church, Arapaho, it's called, in, in Dallas, Texas, has said this. This verse is not about those who are who are peaceful, or, nor pacifists, the kind of people that just lay low, right? But rather about those who actively try to promote harmony in the world. Making peace is not a passive activity. Sometimes it requires confrontation when we would personally feel more peaceful if we simply ignored the problem and walked the other way, which is what all too many of us do. Sometimes making peace requires taking a tough stand and not giving up. Making peace is a pursuit. It is action, not apathy. Boy, he's right about that, isn't he? Sometimes peace, making peace, requires taking a tough stand and not giving up. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? I hope we can all agree with that assessment. Being a peacemaker is not an easy thing, but we can do it by the grace of God and through Christ who strengthens us. We can follow the example of our Lord Jesus. We can be the kind of peacemakers he calls us to be who seek peace through the truth and acquiescence in the truth as it is in Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Father, 
I ask that you please forgive us for our failures in this regard. If my brothers and sisters here are anything like me, uh, they've got some regrets. They've, they can look back on their life and see times when they kept their mouth shut when they probably should have said something. They didn't do something when maybe they should have done something because they didn't want to make waves. It's hard to know uh, sometimes what hill to die on. Uh, It's hard to know sometimes what issues we should take strong stands on and what issues we should leave, leave for another time. We need wisdom for this. But I hope we can all agree that basic truth should be a line that we should never cross. Clearly revealed things in your word are things that we should hold to and never, ever compromise about. Help us, Lord, I pray, to be strong in this way. Help us to be the kind of peacemaker our Lord Jesus wants us to be, even if it means being hated as he was by many people. Lord, help us, I pray, in this regard. And if there's anyone here today who has not yet come to be at peace with you through faith in Jesus Christ, it is our prayer that you would do for him or her, because that's the only two options, him or her. We pray that you would do for him or her what you've done for us. Open their eyes to the truth. Help them to see that Jesus really did exist as one who was fully God and fully man. He really did live a righteous life, never committed any wrong of any kind, thought, word, or deed. And that he therefore died on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And he rose from the dead that we might have everlasting life. And he is seated at your right hand, even now reigning over the world. And he will forgive them if they'll put their faith in him. He will wipe away their sins and grant them his righteousness. He will give them peace with God. Help them to trust in your grace and accept this free gift, I pray, of salvation through Jesus Christ. We'll give you all the glory for what you do as a result of this teaching and these prayers because you alone deserve it. We pray all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As always, I thank you for your kind attention.